to the book of Colossians and chapter 3, Colossians chapter 3, and if you've been with us, we are still considering the theme of families in the battle for the glory of God, and we're going to continue that tonight, but I'm having us turn to a companion uh, text to our primary passage in the book of Ephesians. And if you're here in Colossians 3 now, verse number 19, uh, you can see the admonition to wives um, to the same kind of conduct that is mentioned back in Ephesians 5.22. And that is, wives, submit yourselves and your own husbands. The idea, remember, is arrange yourself under your husband's leadership. And then we have here in verse number 19 that uh, this is something that is fitting. This is a fitting relationship for a wife that knows the Lord. Conduct on the part of a wife that knows the Lord that would be to the glory of God is conduct that is submissive in relationship to her husband. And then with verse 20, you can see the husband um, is... I'm sorry, I got off... Verse 18 was the wife's. Verse 19 now is the husband's. And uh, you can see the husbands are exhorted to the same conduct that was given back in uh, Ephesians 5 and verse 25, and that is to love. And again, I would make the observations here that we made there, and that is this, is, this love is not eros, which is uh, attracted by uh, the sight and is more of a self-gratification romantically. This love goes beyond storge, which is kind of natural family love. This goes beyond phileo, which is tenderness and affection. But this is agape love. This is the kind of love that is marked by sacrificial giving, even when it may not be natural to sacrificially give. And then there is an expression that is found here in uh, Colossians that is not found in Ephesians, and this is our reason for turning here tonight. This love on the part of a husband in verse number 19 uh, does exclude what? Husbands, love your wives and be not, be not bitter against them. It excludes bitterness. Now this word and its related terms is found 12 times in the New Testament. And the foundational sense of bitterness is something that is pointed. So if you are talking about an arrow, right, then, then you'd be talking about a sharp arrow, right? If you are talking about a smell, it would be a penetrating smell. Okay? If you're talking about sound, a bitter sound, it would have the idea of something that is shrill, okay? If you're talking about feelings, it would be painful. If you're talking about taste being better, it would be, uh, again, it would be uh, something that was harsh, not sweet or soft. In James 3 and verse 11, to give a couple of references, um, there, there was bitter water, which was the opposite of sweet or fresh water. Uh, Revelation chapter 8 and verse 11 foretells of a time in the tribulation when people will die as a result of drinking poisoned water. 
and it describes that water as, as bitter. Um, Hebrews chapter 12 describes bitterness like a root that defiles many. So it's, it's a foundation of something that grows up and ends up defiling. Now, bitterness is, is something that is associated with, with pain and with hurt. When, when Peter's eyes met the Lord's eyes, after Peter had denied the Lord three times and the cock crew, and Peter was aware of that, and uh, when Jesus was led through the courtyard of the high priest and the eyes of the Lord and Peter met after all of that, the Bible says Peter went out and wept bitterly. He, he was exceptionally grieved and, and pained by the knowledge of his denial. So when someone is displaying bitterness towards another, it's talking about all of these same concepts of being harsh, being pointed, um, being resentful in spirit, harsh in word, harsh in actions. And, and this resentful spirit and this harsh approach to continue to connect it with these other figures, it, it will be like literally water that has been poisoned. And, and the poison is introduced into the relationship where there is this resentfulness and this harshness. The resentfulness of bitterness and the harshness of bitterness is the opposite of forgiveness. Multiple Bible teachers use the concept of financial obligations and financial debt to illustrate the difference that's right at the core. There's good reason. We're going to see that um, in just a minute. But what is the difference between, between bitterness and forgiveness? Well, bitterness is a posture that, that blames somebody else for deficit in my life. Okay? My life is coming up short. There's a deficit in my life. And, and, and I blame somebody else for that. And obviously here in Colossians, the challenge is given to men in particular not to blame their wives for deficit in, in their lives. And it's interesting that it is directed towards men because what did Adam do in the Garden of Eden? The Lord, of course, found Adam hiding out in fear under the weight of his sin and guilt and confronted him with his disobedience. And Adam said to the Lord, the woman that you gave me, she's the one that took of the fruit and gave it to me. As if to say, I would never be in this position if it wasn't for her. And now my life has all these negative circumstances and in my estimation, it's her fault. Okay? That's the idea of bitterness. Holding somebody as in, uh, as in debt to you because of a deficit that they have created for your life. That is the opposite of forgiveness that actually releases somebody from a debt. And, and financial institutions today will sometimes still use that terminology to talk about releasing somebody from a debt. They will actually say, we forgave the loan. That is, we've released. <clears throat> you, you rightfully owe such and such, but I release you from the debt. So, so bitterness is hanging on to a sense of unfulfilled obligation. 
You've got an obligation to me, and you haven't fulfilled it, and that's created a, a deficit, and, and somebody hangs on to that sense against somebody else with resentment. Now, I would say that it's very fitting for us to come to this exhortation to be not bitter <clears throat> right at this point in our series. Um, bitterness is something that anyone on the earth can struggle with, and the Bible does point to that. But husbands and wives that have had their, their thoughts occupied with scriptural ideals concerning marriage can have a unique vulnerability to struggling. Hey, we've learned what marriage is by God's definition. We've learned what God intends to accomplish through marriage. And we get our, our sights raised to that. Um, we've learned what kind of conduct on the part of a wife glorifies God and and last week we started into the kind of conduct on the part of a husband that glorifies God and and with the ideals raised we can be especially vulnerable to being resentful when our spouse is falling short it's almost as if if my spouse doesn't do her part or his part in this marriage relationship we're not going to be able to fulfill God's ideals and they're not doing anything that is you know anywhere close to contributing to God being glorified and we start to focus on what others are not doing and I can begin to see them as in a deficit and indebted because they're not fulfilling their obligations I know I've said this but but it's never more relative to to this theme that, that uh, some couples I just don't counsel together because one partner hears the obligations to another and they like pounce on them and let them know how far short they are and bring it up again and again. So this is, this is the concept of do I hold them an obligation? Do I see them as having created a deficit in my life? Or did I release them from it? Now, let me have you go to Matthew chapter 18. And we're going to settle in here for a little bit. So that you see we're not just you know, kind of taking a, a word. And almost kind of applying psychology to it. And, and giving kind of counsel that, that, that seems to work and fit in marriage. I want you to see the, the concept that I've just been pointing to coming right out of our Lord's teaching. Look at chapter 18 and verse 21. Then came Peter to him and said, Lord, how oft shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Till seven times? Jesus saith unto him, I say not unto thee until seven times, but until seventy times seven. And obviously, 70 times 7 is what? It's 490. But the point is, the Lord's using a figure to be provocative. I think you all know, he wasn't saying, boy, if you get to 491, that's it. They, they're past now, the forgivable zone. But to make sure our thinking gets started off down the right path, I do want to underscore that what I'm supposed to forgive in others in verse number 21 is what? What I'm supposed to forgive in others is their sin against me. That's what Peter raised. 
I'm sitting on that just a little bit because sometimes we, we can do some negotiating in our minds that kind of arrives at the position that um, we conclude that if somebody <coughs> didn't mean it, okay, if they kind of accidentally hurt us, well, then sure, I'll, I'll look at forgiving them. I know it was a mistake. <coughs> you didn't mean uh, to really hurt me. I don't think you intended to hurt me. That's okay. I forgive you. But <coughs> in a situation where somebody really sins against me, now that is a different story. I mean, he really sinned against me. I'm not forgiving him for that. That's no mistake. He knew what he was doing. He hurt me on purpose. Or she did, or whatever the setting is. But it is sin that's under discussion. And I can back up and and say this, brethren. It is my sin against God that I am asking him to forgive me of. I I don't just go to God and say, God, forgive me for a few weaknesses in my life. And, you know, that I'm not perfect. Not if I'm really doing business with the Lord. I go to the Lord and say, Lord, I've sinned. And it's horrible. But I plead with you to forgive me for Christ's sake. Um, And God is, in the same way, really demanding that I dismiss the indebtedness of people's sins against me. Continue on in verse number 23. The Lord goes ahead and gives an illustration. He said, Therefore is the kingdom of heaven likened unto a certain king, which would take account of his servants. And when he had begun to reckon, one was brought unto him, which owed him 10,000 talents. I'm going to pause here because we, we need to do deal with the, the details the Lord has given. The 10,000 talents by its own sounds like a lot. But I want to assure you, if you haven't done the calculation, it's way more than you think it is. All right? Sometimes in the ancient world, they didn't (coughs) um, do business in coinage. They did it in precious metals. And a talent is talking about a particular quantity of precious metal, whether it's gold or silver, or some other desirable metal. And when discussing the weight of a talent, okay, the authorities talk in terms of something like 60 pounds to 80 pounds. Right now, it's difficult, again, to calculate value without knowing the exact weight or knowing the type of metal and its value in the day. But what multiple scholars, and, and they all kind of um, they dovetail at this point. What they, what they suggest we should think in terms of <clears throat> is a day's wages, and they have estimated that a talent in terms of the average man's wages would have been worth 15 or as much as 20 years of his wages. Okay? If we go, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go on the low end, If we go with 15 and multiply that by what? What did he owe? How many talents? If a talent is, you know, you know, we're talking about 60 to 80 pounds of a precious metal. If that's worth 15 years 
worth of wages for the average man. Okay? There's how many talents in this passage? There's 10,000. All right, so brethren, <clears throat> Jesus says that this man owed 15 times 10,000. 15 times 10,000 is how much? Are we staying awake? Okay. <clears throat> Am I right? It's 150,000. This man owed uh, the, the equivalent of 150,000 years worth of wages. If, if you worked from age 20 to age 70 and you got a full 50 years in, I'm trying to keep the math simple, this is, the, this is the equivalent to 3,000 lifetimes is the number the Lord used here. Now, this servant in that kind of debt, brethren, is actually representative of all of us before God. Right? You, you could live 3,000 lifetimes and all of our noble attempts at righteousness on our own are what? Are filthy rags. We could never pay the debt. <clears throat> but now notice where the Lord goes with this in verse 25. But for as much as he had not to pay, yeah, obviously, he couldn't come up with that, his Lord commanded him to be sold and his wife and children <clears throat> and all that he had, payment to be made, the servant therefore fell down and worshipped him, saying, Lord, have patience with me, and I will pay thee all. Then the Lord of that servant was moved with compassion and loosed him and did what? Forgave him the debt. You see what I'm talking about? The loosing, <clears throat> I release you, is the forgiveness of the debt, the obligation. Now, <clears throat> This servant, even his falling down, his so-called worshiping, is not the point. This isn't the model for us. The single emphasis that is being highlighted now is the fact that, again, our sin before God puts us in a situation that we can't pay. We have to have forgiveness. We have to have God dismissing, releasing, or else... And the servant in this parable was initially granted that release. But now watch what happens. Look at verse 28. But the same servant went out and found one of his fellow servants, <coughs> which owed him a hundred pence. And I think we are already hearing the difference between 10,000 talents down to a hundred. But the difference between a talent and a pence is huge. A, a pence is a translation of the term denarii, and a denarius was a Roman coin that, again, all of the, uh, of the students indicate was the equivalent of a, the wages of a typical day. A typical day laborer might, might expect one denarii. So a hundred denarii is, is a hundred what? It's a hundred days wages. Okay, now, I know that's a vast difference between <clears throat> um, 10,000 talents, but I would say that's nothing to take real lightly either. 
right? How much do you make in a hundred working days? If I go with a, you know, five-day week, right? How many weeks of work is that for you? You're, you're all looking at me like, just tell us, please, and don't make us have to think anymore. All right. <clears throat> and do math after all it's summer. I mean, 20 weeks of work. How many months are you into? You're four and a half months. Think about your wages for four and a half months. Okay, so <clears throat> that's how much somebody owes you and they're not making any payments on the debt. So that isn't, you know, no big deal. And so what does he do? Look at what the Lord goes on to say. He laid hands on him. And he took him by the throat, saying, pay me that thou owest. <clears throat> and his fellow servant fell down at his feet and besought him, saying, have patience with me, and I will pay thee all. And if you've never drawn <clears throat> the lines, you, you want to connect verse 26 and verse 29, because... It's nearly an exact quote of what the first servant said when he appealed. So he appealed, <coughs> and he was granted release. Now somebody's appealing to him in nearly the same words. And how did he respond? Look at verse 30. And he would not, but went <coughs> and cast him into prison. Till he should pay the debt. And brother, I do think we need to stop. And I, I know I'm taking a little license with, with, the, with the figure. But there are, there are all kinds of figurative prisons. That we put people in. That have done us wrong. And, and we have... Various ways we kind of let people know that they have not fulfilled their obligation. I have a deficit in my life because of what you have done to me, <clears throat> what you have created for me. And I will let you know I'm not happy about that, and I'm not going to let you out of the prison of my feelings towards you. This man had been loosed by the king from a debt that he couldn't pay in a thousand lifetimes. But he was pitiless and merciless and cold-hearted and unmoved towards someone much closer to him in terms of a peer who had a real debt, but it still paled in comparison. And verse 31 when his fellow servants saw what was done, they were very sorry and came and told unto their Lord all that was done. And I don't know, I really don't know why this part of the Lord's story is in here. I do wonder if there, it may be that we're supposed to, to think about somebody else that maybe is crying out to the Lord to change your heart towards them. That is, maybe 
Maybe there's somebody under your leadership or somebody that is closely related to you and, and, and they feel that you are holding them in some kind of relational, emotional prison. And they're holding you in some kind of debt and they're blaming you for a deficit in their life and you know it and you feel it and, and, uh, and they know it, they feel it. And, and they're almost even crying out to the Lord, Lord, change their heart. It could even be that that somebody, and I'll use the context of, of, of what we're in when we're talking about marriage and, and in particular to the husbands, it may be that somebody else is watching a husband not treating their wife properly and you can see all the marks of it and, and somebody is crying out, Lord, would you change that man's heart because he's putting that woman through prison. Well, verse 32, Then his Lord, after that he had called him, said unto him, O thou wicked servant, I did what? I forgave thee all that debt, because thou desirest me. Shouldest not thou also have had compassion on thy fellow servant, even as I had pity on thee? And his Lord was wroth and delivered him to tormentors till he should pay all that was due unto him. Now it's interesting in his case now, he wasn't just put into prison, but he was delivered to some kind of what? To some kind of torment. What kind of extra hardships and, and baggage emotionally and, and otherwise does the Lord allow to afflict those who won't forgive others? Sometimes somebody, somebody keeps another person in a, in a prison of their bitterness but actually, and, and you've heard this, and I, I think there's, I don't mind citing physiological things, but um, even physiologically, some people are killing themselves physically through their bitterness. But I don't think that just happens. I think there's indication here that that's even a God-ordained form of punishment. That there, that there is... God allowing something of a torment come into your life because you refuse to forgive others. It's a loving discipline of God as a father to try to turn his children towards repentance and almost kind of keep them under some pressure until they relent and, and, and face the fact that really they're in some torment because what they need to do is to forgive instead of keep holding on to that bitterness. And verse 35, the reason why I, I keep stopping to make some application is, look at this, so likewise shall my heavenly Father do also unto you, if ye from your hearts forgive not every one his brother their trespasses. 
And it really is a matter of the heart. Forgive from your heart. It's not lip service. There, there really is a transformation of the spirit and the inner man. Now, when I was um, going back through and considering some of this truth, I, I was reminded that often in teaching on forgiveness, bitterness, but forgiveness in particular, there are some scriptural clarifications that are good to consider. I'm going to mention some tonight without even going through it, but for instance, in another gospel account, the Lord says, if a brother sins, rebuke him, and if he what? And if he repents, forgive him. Okay. When does love cover a multitude of sins? When do I rebuke? When do I look for repentance, and what do I do if there isn't any? And, and how does forgiveness on a personal level impact social and, and corporate consequences, at, you know, even within a family, church family, whatever it may be? There, there's some questions like that to consider. Um, I, I think there's even an exercise of forgiveness that fails to deal with sin in a way that it ends up teaching the offending party that almost crime pays, <laughs> Right? So I know all those questions we can wrestle with. And, and as I was going through this week, I was thinking uh, that I'm going to look for an opportunity to come back another time. Okay. But having, having raised those, and they're out there, I also do think it is good for us to consider the straightforward challenge that is here without a discussion of the intricacies and, and, and part of the reason why that is because, is because in our flesh, our primary tendency is not to grant forgiveness. In fact, as one man said, our tendency is to actually calculate the debt and exaggerate the debt. I spend extended time thinking on it, and it gets bigger and bigger and bigger in my mind. That's the natural tendency. But when, when I'm thinking, when I'm thinking scripturally, when I'm thinking after the mind of Christ, when I'm, when I'm thinking right in terms of scripture and the Lord, my tendency will go the other way, and that will be to minimize and even to look for occasion to forgive and release because that's really what I want to do as God's grace is at work. Now, brethren, what it will take to think right in this arena is it will take us thinking about the gospel. And it'll take me thinking about the forgiveness that is granted me in the gospel. And I'm not just finding a way to talk about the gospel. Think of the direct connections. Be ye kind, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as what? Even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. So think about the extent of God's releasing your indebtedness to him. Think about the kindness and tenderness of that. Now be kind one to another. 
Colossians 3 and verse 13, forbearing one another, forgiving one another, if any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. So our, our, our practice of forgiveness or bitterness is revealing how much the gospel has truly impacted our experience. And I'm not just talking about are we saved, are we born again or not, but I'm talking about how much is the gospel just saturating my mind and, and, and I- impacting the whole posture of, of my inner man towards others. One way you know a heart has truly been touched by the gospel and it's pure in its own confession to God and, and, and pleading with God to forgive is that it is prepared to release and dismiss others who have hurt us. And it is such a big deal that again here in chapter 18 and, and verse number 35, he says, So likewise shall my heavenly Father do also unto you, if ye from your hearts forgive not everyone his brother their trespasses. How much do we need forgiveness? From God. How much do we need again and again the just fresh applications of the blood of Christ in terms of our relationship with the Lord? We don't get that if we don't forgive others. Matthew 6, 14 and 15, we're told just flat out that if we don't forgive, we don't get forgiven. It's that big of a deal. And while so much of what we consider tonight is is true for all believers, there is a special emphasis on this theme for husbands. We started there in Colossians 3. Husbands, love your wives, and don't be better against them. Specifically targeted there. Turn over to 1 Peter chapter 3. And we have continued in the course of this series to consider some of the parallel teaching and cross-references to, from Ephesians 5 to 1 Peter 3. And I just want to have us go to verse number 7 tonight, where we read, Likewise, ye husbands, and... I'm just going to back up. We have chapter 3, verse 1. Likewise, ye what? Likewise, ye wives. Well, the wives are going to be compared to who? Well, where did this all start? Look at verse 18 of chapter 2. Servants, be subject to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the who? To the forward. If you, if you have to work for a crooked boss, you're going to end up suffering some, at some level. And there's a real challenge for you to, to, to suffer patiently, suffer for the glory of God, and the example that we're given is verse 21, for, here, for even hereunto were ye called because Christ also suffered for us. And he clearly suffered how? He suffered unjustly. It wasn't fair. He did no sin. 
I mean, he's, it, it, he goes on to quote here from, from Isaiah. He didn't do anything to deserve what he was facing, but he was treated poorly. So, chapter 3, verse 1, likewise, ye wives, be in subjection to your own husbands, if any obey not the word. That's a difficult situation for a wife to be in, but there's, the, there's conduct on the part of a wife that can win a disobedient husband. All right, here's the whole flow. So, verse 7, likewise, ye husbands. If you're, if you're an employee and you're having to deal with some unfair things, people aren't doing you right at work, <laughs> face it like Christ did. If you're a wife and you're having to deal with some unfair things because of a disobedient husband, okay, there's a pattern in Christ. Look to him. Trust him. Do right. And, verse 7, likewise ye husbands. <clears throat> Men, you well know you don't have perfect wives. And the Bible's conceding that. I mean, not even just conceding. I mean, he's just assuming. Yes. And, and, and your wives are going to do some things towards you that hurt. Sometimes, maybe even, sin against you. And in addition to that, our wives just have some weakness. Inherent that the Bible speaks to. Look at verse 7. Likewise, ye husbands, dwell with them according to knowledge, giving honor to the wife as under the weaker vessel. And, and in the Greek text, it's even more connected. What I'm supposed to know about them is even to know their weakness. Yes, dwell with them. And even as you understand their particular weaknesses, still give them honor. Give them honor because of what? Well, continuing on, <clears throat> give, them, give them honor because we are heirs together of the grace of life. And then even this, give honor that your prayers be not hindered. Men, the weaknesses in our wives that can be occasion for bitterness, our Lord wants to see as an occasion for us to handle them with value and with honor. The weakness actually enhances the opportunity to show the love that Christ has for the church. How many perfect churches are there? How many perfect Christians? Don't you know and haven't you experienced the love of God in spite of your weakness? I know the word bitterness isn't used here, but this whole concept of dwelling with the knowledge of our wife's weakness and choosing to show honor rules out bitterness. And men, when we think about it, if you got challenged and... and if somebody else were to point a finger, okay, or honestly even just under preaching like this, or <clears throat> maybe uh, in, in personal private life, there's, you, you just get convicted at some level that you're not loving your wife. That's not love, and you know it. <clears throat> and, and you say, but I do love my wife. Right? The standard is 
love your wife as who? Love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. Now, men, I always say this very practically. I'm not saying it for sensational. I'm telling you that on a fairly regular basis, if I think of something that either Karen has not, in my estimation, she's not met an obligation. Or I just encounter a weakness in her. And my, my thoughts tend towards accentuating her weakness. I can tell you that God, by his grace, repeatedly reminds me that there is no way my wife will ever sin against me to the same degree that I have sinned against my Lord. It's not even close, and I am an absolute fool to think it ever gets anywhere close. And a proud and arrogant fool to think that it ever gets close. <clears throat> Loving my wife as Christ loved the church means that any weakness detected <clears throat> doesn't give any justification for bitterness. It actually becomes a greater opportunity to show the love of Christ by the grace of God to the glory of God. And commentators go a couple of directions in understanding this last phrase, that your prayers be not hindered. Uh, some think that what it's saying is that a husband can't pray with his wife when, when he's bitter because it just isn't a fit. Not, <laughs> I would say it's hard to pray with anybody you're not happy with, right? Um, a smaller group suggests that praying isn't effective when there's bitterness in your heart because you go to pray and your mind's all occupied with everything that, else that, that people aren't doing right about for you and to you. I'm sure that those things, again, are true. But <clears throat> I tend to see the greatest weight in the interpretation that your prayers be not hindered is actually something that God just directly steps into. Now, I'm not going to walk us through all that for time's sake tonight and where we're at, but let me quote to you one well-respected commentator. He said, So concerned is God that Christian husbands live in an understanding and loving way with their wives that he interrupts his relationship to them when they're not doing so. That your prayers be not hindered is actually God interrupting the full unhindered communication of the relationship between God and the husband because the husband isn't doing right with the wife. He goes on, no Christian husband should presume to think any spiritual good will be accomplished by his life without an effective ministry of prayer. And no husband may expect an effective prayer life unless he lives with his wife in an understanding way, bestowing honor on her. And men, a, a husband that continues to rehearse the gospel, really, rehearse the gospel again and again and again, and with humility, thankful for God's love in Christ and a husband who rehearsing the gospel and is humbly thankful 
and, and chases away bitterness. By the grace of God, just I'm, I'm going to choose to not hold on, but choose to release. This is not going to stay. That husband and that husband's love will be conduct that glorifies God. And that's the greatest motivation that there is, is that God be seen. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? And...